I am so glad that you're here with us as well, because we have an opportunity to open up the Word of God that is alive and active. This morning, we officially are kicking off our Christmas sermon series as we remember the birth of Jesus Christ by centering on the word unequal, which carries with it the overarching idea that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of the Virgin, announced by angels, having lived a sinless life and offering himself as a sacrifice to rescue humanity from the death grip of sin and being raised from the dead is above all else. And he is unequal to any other thing or name or person in history. Amen to that. For the next several weeks leading up through Christmas, we will be focusing on the passage of Scripture in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 9, that not only foretells of the birth of Jesus, but prophesies nearly 700 years before his birth what Jesus, the Son of God, will be doing by way of his name. In other words, the names of Jesus that we will be encountering will remind us of the unequal functions and promises that God has ordained through Jesus as he completes his plan of redemption and restoration for all of humanity. That's you and I. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Now, if you're not quite sure where Isaiah is, when you open your Bible, if you were to open it just kind of like in the middle, you've got a high probability of success that you're going to run into that book of Isaiah. You know you're in the ballpark when you hit the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. But if you would open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to be reading from this in just a moment. This is going to be where our series is going to focus on, specifically in verse 6. But while you're opening your Bibles, I want to lead you in a little bit of a background to this book and why it is so important to our faith. You see, the book of Isaiah was written nearly 2,700 years ago for the northern and the southern kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Its message was given to those people that were living in a time of great prosperity and great power. Now, from our perspective, our humanity's perspective, if we were to do a case study on Israel and Judah, our perspective would say they had it made. But how many of us know that sometimes what we see versus what God sees can be two different things? Amen? While their own human intellect was saying that God is good. Oh, he's so good. Look at the money that we've got. Look at the power we've got. Look at the influence we've got. Look how easy life is. While they were looking at things just being all right, God was saying, wait a minute. I see something that is happening in your midst that needs to be dealt with. And while things were good on the surface, God was saying, I'm seeing idolatry. I'm seeing that you've allowed pagan worship to enter into my culture. God was seeing that they were giving lip service to him, speaking his name in just the superficial Context only, but underneath the surface, their hearts were from him, far, far, far from him. The rich oppressed the poor. The spiritual leaders of the day were more interested in pleasing fellow mankind and society than they were God. And people in general were pursuing their own sinful wants and desires. 
Sound like the society that we know today? So God in his mercy and justice. How many of us know God is a just God? God is a holy God. In his mercy and justice. Justice doesn't mean that God's a meanie sitting in heaven. It means that he is holy, righteous, just, true, and loves us. God gives a message of warning to the prophet Isaiah that was meant to be delivered to all of Israel and Judah that was a wake-up call to say, listen, things look good on the surface for you now, but in a very short period of time, things are going to get tough because my hand of blessing is being removed from your community because you have allowed your heart to stray far from me. And I love you so much that I'm going to allow this removal of blessing to serve as an opportunity to get your attention. But even in the midst of God's justice, of God's punishment, of God's getting their attention, God demonstrates an incredible show or sign of his mercy. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, God demonstrates that he is unequal to anyone. And he says in Isaiah 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, in this time of darkness and despair, it will not go on forever. In other words, the blessings of God are going to be removed. But although things will seem hopeless, it's not going to last forever. How's that for a merciful God? He's talking to a group of people who have turned their backs on him, who have openly sinned against him, who are worshiping things other than God. And he's saying, I've got to bring punishment, but I love you so much that this time of great despair, this time of darkness that will be in your life, it will not last forever. And then he says this, there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles will be filled with glory. How many of you remember in Luke chapter 2 what happened when the angels came and visited the shepherds? It says in the book of Luke chapter 2 that when the angels came that the glory of God radiated from the angels because God is unequal. And he was announcing something that would be unequal. And so through the birth of a child who would be unequal to anyone who had been before him and unequal to any who would ever be born after him, this Jesus was about to show the world what the love of God is. I don't know about you, but this is exciting. And when I think about the glory of God radiating from angels, just messengers, of the birth of Jesus, and I think about what Jesus actually came and did while he was on this earth. This is something that we can get excited about. So over these next few weeks, we're going to take a close look at the unequal components of Jesus. Not all of them, because who could contain him? And we're going to look at some of the names that God used for his son that was unequal to any. For the remainder of the time that we have this morning, we're going to be looking at one of those names, just one of those names, that was given to Jesus and prophesied over six or 700 years before his birth. But before we do, I want to pause for just a moment and ask you something about the significance of a name. Now, when we came into this world, you and I, when we were born, some of you, that was a long time ago. Some of you, it was less than a long time ago. <laughs> when we came into this world, what was one of the first decisions that your parents had to make about you? Your name. So it was your name. And the bottom line is we can't go through life being called boy, dinger, baby, or girl, dinger, baby. We can't just go through life like that. And so... Is we were brought into this world, the most important decisions that your parents made wasn't that you were going to have an innie or outie belly button. 
It was that you were going to be given a name that would hopefully mean something. Now, Julie and I anticipated this question with each one of our children. And we were very mindful of what we wanted to call Jordan, Madison, and Elijah. Now, I'm going to pick on Elijah because he's here this morning. And one of the things that, that we, we decided with him, even while he was in mom's belly, Julie at the time was a, a children's ministry director out in the West County at the Federated Church, and so she was around music constantly and kids. And as Elijah was developing in, in mommy's belly, anytime a worship song would come on, this boy just got active. And he was a boy that would praise God and worship God even in the womb. We could feel the activity. And it wasn't coincidence. It was time after time again when worship or praise or something in the spirit was happening, this young man was alive in the womb. And so as we were thinking about, God, what do we want to call this child? We settled on the name Elijah, which means the Lord is my God. So that when he would walk through life, when he would make decisions of, of manhood in life, that he would always be reminded that the Lord is his God and that hopefully that he lives such a life or a life in such a way that people that see him, that know him, that experience life with him would say, Elijah is a man of which God is the Lord of his life. That's what a name meant to us. I'm having a little bit of fun here as I was thinking through the idea of my wife, thinking through some of our pastors on staff. I thought, okay, what, what do their names mean? Well, Pastor John Richardson, his name means Jehovah has been gracious and has shown favor. Pastor Don Fisher, great chief, world ruler. <laughs> Pastor Quint, if he's in the room, five. Fifth, Pastor Danielle, God is my judge. Pastor Nicole, the people's victory. Pastor Michael, who is like God? And then Pastor Jim, to overthrow or defeat. You see, a name can convey something. It can convey purpose. And in his message of hope and joy to Isaiah... God acted no differently when it came to his son, Jesus. And he wanted his name to convey something. The problem is, what do you call the son of God? Jesus, who is so equal, cannot be defined. So God gives the prophet Isaiah several names to help define how unequal he is. Take a look at them. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And he, being Jesus, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What incredible names God has handpicked to define his son Jesus. Even saying them, as I was preparing for this particular message, my spirit was just welling up at the name of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So does it come as a surprise as we study these names that our spirits well up within us, our spirits get stirred in a good way as we look at the names of him? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. For the remainder of the time that we have this morning, I'll be focusing in on the words, Wonderful Counselor. Now that word wonderful, it carries with it the flavor or the meaning of something that is extraordinary, a cut above, better than anyone else can do. I remember a time in my early 20s when I had the opportunity to go down to spring training to the Florida Marlins baseball camp. I'd been invited to do tryouts at spring training. I was an Erie boy, pretty decent ball player, especially in the community league. Some of you I actually had a chance to play with on our church league somewhere in a mix. 
But the Marlins had invited me to come down, and so I took the opportunity. Who doesn't want to leave Erie when it's like 12 degrees, right? And head down to 80. And I'll never forget getting on that airplane. My, my baseball, baseball's glove, all my gear is loaded up on a plane. I'm watching it come on up, and my mind starts to daydream and to drift a bit. Sitting in my seat as a smug 20-something and looking out the window and The thoughts were coming to mind. I wonder if I'm going to make a single, double, or a triple-A team. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with professional baseball, you you would know that, or let me rephrase it, if you don't know professional baseball, they have three levels of really pro development. Now, there's a few more that are below that. But there's single-A ball, double-A, and triple-A, and all those are pro-development systems of which you can play professionally and be recognized by the team and hopefully make your way up to the majors. I'm sitting on a plane thinking, I'm going to make one of those three teams, and eventually the majors. So I get down to Florida one day, I step off the plane, and at that point in time, uh, the Marlins training complex was at a school called the Bucky Dent Baseball School. Most beautiful fields I had ever seen, most prestigious setup that I had ever seen. And I'll I'll never forget thinking, huh, I'm going to be down here for a while. And then I sat in my first coaches meeting. Coaches and scouts were around, and as they were talking, one of the first things that that hit me was, you're going to be compared against Ricky Henderson. Now, for those of you that are in my age or bracketed a little bit above, you may remember Ricky Henderson was the fastest man in baseball at that particular point in time. And the thought hit me, huh, I don't know that I'm as fast as Ricky Henderson. (laughs) But that's where I was going to be compared against. And then it wasn't long later in those particular tryouts that I stepped into the batting cage. And as I got... Got ready, I saw a ball come in so fast and so hard on the inside that I couldn't turn on it. And as that ball hit my bat, I immediately lost feeling in my hands. <laughs> it seemed like hours. I started to think to myself, I better not buy that Porsche or Lamborghini just yet. <laughs> I'm out on the field, I'm a shortstop. And there's some guys ahead of me in that position as well. And as I'm waiting for my turn in the rotation, I'm hearing and seeing that ball flying so fast across the diamond that I am pretty sure that I could hear it whistle. At that point in time, I recognize there are good ball players, but there then there is a cream of the crop. And mister, you're not going to be signing any baseball cards anytime soon. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the wonder of God. He is so far above that when placed in the, in the center of humanity, everybody stops and takes notice. Even the teachers of the law that were dealing with Jesus in his day recognized that he had authority that was beyond compare. And aren't you glad we serve and worship a God that would send that to this world? Wonderful. But that's only the first part of the first name that he was given. According to Isaiah 9-6, he was called Wonderful Counselor. Now, the word counselor may throw us off for a moment at least in our modern day history, because when we say the word counselor, this is the type of image that we will often think about. We don't have, there it is. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) We're we're coming from the Scranton area, and uh, there was a block that Julie and I would come across, and there was a, a center there called Scranton Counseling. And I'll tell you what, you would have thought it was the metropolis of Scranton, that people would hang out there for days and hours upon end. But the word counselor, in its 
context of which it was written to Isaiah doesn't have anything to do with Snoopy getting five-cent advice. The word counselor actually carries with it someone who is wise and filled with knowledge. Now, wonderful counselor. Beyond compare, a cut above in the area of wisdom and knowledge. Why is this important? Because the book of Proverbs tells us that if we will center our thoughts upon God and we put our minds to attaining wisdom and knowledge, then guess what? Godly wisdom and knowledge will lead to peace and joy, fullness of life. Wonderful counselor. Someone who can be counted on for proper direction in the midst of our trials and struggles in life. Aren't you glad that we have somebody that we can call on that will give us counsel? So that's cool. I can hear my kids right now. That's cool. Uh, we understand what the names of God are, Dad, and what does that mean for us today? What's the message? What do I do with it? Colossians chapter 2, if you'd turn with me there, maybe scan over there on your phone or your iPad. But in the book of Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul addresses the significance of wisdom in God's counsel, his knowledge. In the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 verse 1 says something that when in my preparations for this particular message caught me off guard. I've read this, I can't tell you how many times I have read this book over the years. But in Colossians 2, verse 1, there is a word that comes to light. And Paul says, I am contending. I am contending for you. What's he doing? He's saying, I am struggling for you spiritually for what? For you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. Why is he contending for them? And he says very quickly, I love Paul, he gets to the point in verse 2, he says, because my goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that people may have the full riches of complete understanding. In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, and get this, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Whoa. Treasures that are wrapped in this aspect of wisdom and knowledge. God, through the wonderful counselor, is wanting to give us treasure. So the Apostle Paul, as he's contending, is concerned. Why is he concerned? He's concerned because he recognizes that they were living in a world where human reasoning and logic could very easily take over thought processes and hearts if they weren't centered in God. Today's day and age, we need wisdom. We go to Facebook. Today's day and age, we need some understanding. What do we do? We YouTube channel it. And Paul was saying, I'm struggling for these churches. I'm struggling because human wisdom, human intellect, human knowledge, human understanding is not of God. The human wisdom, the human knowledge, the human understanding needs to be breathed in by God. God is the one that gives mankind humanity, wisdom, and knowledge that is perfect, and it is a treasure house. But if we're not walking with God, then those things that we accumulate from the world's perspective 
aren't going to line up with what his word says. And so in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, as he had started out, Paul said, I'm writing to you at Colossae, but I'm also writing to you at Laodicea, and I want to give you some proof here. If you were to flip your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is speaking as the wonderful counselor. And if you find yourself in Revelation 2 or 3 this week, and and I hope that you are, there is a message that he speaks to churches, seven of them, of which he is saying, I am intimately aware of what is going on in the life of you, church. And he calls them out individually, the wonderful counselor does. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 Jesus is addressing the church at Laodicea, the same church that Paul was saying, I am contending for you. I am struggling for you. I see something that I'm very concerned about. And Laodicea, based off of what we see in the book of Revelation, has not given ear to what God has spoken through the apostle Paul. Listen to these words of Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. You talk about a wonderful counselor. Jesus is speaking here. He says, I know your deeds. I know that you're neither cold nor hot. And I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. If you were to do a word study on this, that word spit actually means to vomit intensely. Jesus is saying that I know your deeds. I don't like what I see. I don't like the way that I'm seeing your heart split. You're one foot in the world. You're one foot here. You're not hot. You're not cold. What's interesting about Laodicea? Laodicea, geographically at that point in time, had two rivers that came into it to feed its water supply system. One of those rivers was known as a river that carried the the warm temperature water, the hot water coming from the hot springs that were nearby. But another river that flowed into it or a stream that flowed into it was known for its cold water and the two would intersect. And so the, the water supply at Laodicea was always lukewarm. And God was saying, I'm giving you an example of something that's actually in your life right now. He says, you're not hot, you're not cold. Travelers that would walk through Laodicea would say, so oftentimes it would stink due to the the lukewarmness of the water and the things that would breed in that water. So because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And then in verse 17, he says this. You see... I am rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is calling them out. And it doesn't sound to me like they heeded Paul's warnings in Colossians chapter 2. But just like God, Jesus' Father, in Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus provides hope in the midst of the truth that is spoken. And I believe this is something that we need to hear today. God may be calling us out on some stuff. And they may be some bold words that he's using. I mean, hey, let's face it. Jesus to Laodicea, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Those are tough words. The Holy Spirit may be tugging at your heart right now. 
Don't let that tug go. Don't ignore it. Because Jesus is about to say to Laodicea, there's still hope. Even in the midst of all this stuff that has gone on. And he says this. He says, I counsel you. Remember? The wonderful counselor. Counselor was somebody that would give advice to a king. And they were, in ancient days, so filled with wisdom and knowledge and understanding that they often would become the king themselves. And here's the counselor saying, I counsel you to buy from me gold that's been refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't talking about a physical component here. He's talking about their spiritual condition. He's saying, wake up. You think you're rich. You think you're powerful. You think you've got it all. But if you're not walking with me, then you have nothing. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. For here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, honestly, is that the first time we've heard that particular verse? Sometimes we hear it in the area of evangelism. And I'll tell you what, it's a powerful, it's a powerful verse. Uh, the evangelism that's going on is the evangelism that needs to happen in the church. Jesus is talking to the church, and he says, I'm on the outside of your hearts, and I'm knocking because I want back in to your hearts. And the question that will be in front of us here right now is this, will we let him in? He's standing at the door and knocking. If we choose to ignore the instruction of the wonderful counselor, then we effectively choose to shut the door on our relationship with that counselor. I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to have a conversation with somebody when the door is closed between you? <laughs> I'm going out the, the door to, to come to the office, and as the door closes behind me, Julie might be sharing with me some important piece of instruction. If the door closes, am I going to hear it? I hear it. What do I need to do? If I want to hear that instruction, I want to hear that word, I've got to stop, and I've got to go back and say, honey, I'm sorry, I shut the door. What was it you were telling me? Oh, I'm not mad at you. I want dinner tonight. When the door is closed, it's awfully hard to hear the other person speaking. And when we close the door on our relationship with Jesus, then we have removed ourselves from our relationship with God. Did you hear that? If we have closed the door on our relationship with Jesus, we have removed ourselves from our relationship with God. And if we don't have a relationship with God, then how in the world can we expect to have peace and the fullness of life that is promised to those who love him? And isn't that so, the logic of today? I'll get mad at God for not blessing me, but I'll take no ownership for my lack of cultivating a relationship with him. Amen? So what do we do? Are we without hope? Hey, pastor, we're going into the Christmas season. I wanted something that felt good. It's coming. I promise. How do we once again engage in this relationship with Jesus as the wonderful counselor? 
If he's knocking on the outside of our hearts, then we do the obvious. We let him in. Wow, that wasn't rocket science, was it? He's on the outside knocking. What do we do? We open the door. We let Jesus in. Revelation chapter 3 verse 19 says that we should be earnest and repent. So included in, in, in addition to what Jesus is speaking to Laodicea, he's saying, I'm, I'm counseling you. Buy gold that's been refined with me from the fire. Come back into relationship with me. And then he uses these two words. He says, be earnest and repent. Be earnest means to be committed to, to desire. Set your hearts on our relationship. And repent means to do what? To turn away and turn back to God. Very clear instructions. And that's what a wonderful, wise counselor will speak. Okay, you need to be committed to change. And your change looks like this. You walk away from your sin and you walk towards the glory of God. Amen? And when we walk towards the glory of God and we're seeking the counsel of the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ, the the gift that has been given to us as humanity, the gift that is still alive and active, the gift who is still at work in our lives, then we can expect to see life change, fullness of peace and joy in our lives. To a certain extent, it can be a little bit of a tough word. But it's a word I believe we need to hear. What's more merciful for God to reveal those things he's displeased with in our lives? Or to not say a word and then when we get to heaven someday, him to say, get out of here. Depart from me. I know you're not. Because you were a sinner. But God, you didn't tell me anything about that sin. But God, you didn't warn me. But God, I didn't realize that this was going on. God's a merciful God. And God is a God that will bring things to light. Our daughter Madison was home from college the other day, the Thanksgiving holiday, and just before we prepared to send her back to school, Dad did what I think a lot of you dads and moms would be doing. He checked her car. Now, I'll be honest with you. Your college school days, your first starting out, you remember what your cars were like, right? I'm sorry if you've got one of these types of cars in here. It will get better, I promise. (laughs) Study hard. So I went out and I checked her car just before she was to leave, and that thing, the door opens up, and I think it sagged like two inches. And I reach under, <laughs> under the dash looking for the, the hood, and I pop the hood and open up the, the hood, and I look at the engine, I'm like, oh my goodness, I start praying. <laughs> pop up the hood find the dipstick to let me know how much oil she is and pull it out and clean it, stick it in, pull it out, stick it back in. I did that probably four times. Not a drop of oil on that dipstick. And she's going to go five hours back down to school. I just shook my head because I got to tell you, this is a conversation that has not been a one-off. It is every semester she is home, even to the point where I've tagged the boyfriend and said, hey, Tyler, um, would you do me a favor and check Madison's fluid levels, please? He's a computer science major. (laughs) (sighs) Explains it all, doesn't it? Irritated, I go into the house, and I get Madison's keys, and I drive down to the country fair, not because she's low on oil, but because the other thing I saw in the midst of my evaluation were two front tires that were barely off the ground. Now, what's love? 
from the dad's perspective, I went down to the country fair, popped $2 or something like that for air. Can you believe that? Have you been to one of these places recently? Two bucks for air? So I pop my quarters in, right? And I, I'm filling up the tires and I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. I don't know if you remember that weekend, but it got cold and I didn't have my gloves on. And so every time I'm hearing a thing, ka-ching, 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 I'm like, kid, I'm going to crown you. And then I go to the next tire and I do the same thing. And then I go into the store because, hey, we're on holiday and I don't have chance to, I didn't have a chance to get down to the auto parts store. So I had to buy four quarts of oil at something like four bucks a piece. It cost me something. Before I even drive another, another rotation of tires, the hood's up and I'm popping oil into that car, and it's like, oh, thank you, somebody noticed me. <laughs> if a car could talk. And I went home, and I scolded Maddie. I said, Madison, how many times do I have to tell you to check your oil? Well, well Dad, I, I, had a, I had a quart of oil in the back seat. I didn't, that's not the words I used, Madison. How many times do I have to tell you to check your oil? Now, and if it's low, we add the oil to that spot that I showed you under the hood. Remember? Yeah. Love was me taking care of her situation while making her aware of it. If I didn't love Madison, I didn't care two hoots about her. I said, see a kid? And sent her down the door, or sent her out the door with a car with no oil and tires that were barely off the ground. How much more does Jesus love us? He's saying, I'm going to pay a price that's much more than country fare could charge. I'm going to pay a price so that you can be fixed again so that you can drive down that road of life to which I have called you and to which I have created you for and to which you have purpose in this life for. And yes, I'm going to call it out when you're sinning because that's danger. But I love you so much that I am going to call it out. And if you're willing... I'm going to help you get it taken care of. That's the wonderful counselor that we know. Church, we live in a day and an age when the world is giving us all the nonsense, all the wisdom that means absolutely nothing as it relates to God. We live in a world that doesn't care whether or not you go to heaven or hell. We live in a world that says, hey, take it easy. I'm going to date myself. Simon, Simon and Garfunkel, right? Going through our heads. Slow down. You move too fast. Right? Make the moment last. Kicking away down the cobblestone. Do, 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 do. Feeling groovy. Do, 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 do. Feeling groovy. Guess what? God isn't saying, slow down. Elijah's giving me the, hey, don't know, Dad, Dad, remember, I'm in here, right? The world doesn't care about our relationship with God. And so Jesus, in this book of Revelation, as he's writing to these seven churches, and I've, I've brought them all together, I'm looking at the words of correction, that he's gone from Ephesus all the way to, to Laodicea, and we can bring down his core points. And this is what we see in order to fix our problem. 
Remember the height from which we have fallen. We remember what Jesus did. He came and he saved a wretch like me. Because there is not one of us on our own. There is no human wisdom on Facebook that can counsel you to earn your salvation and say, hey, you're so good and without Jesus, you'll still get to heaven. There's no counsel that will stand before God that allows you to get to heaven without Jesus. One thing that God is interested in is, do you know my son, Jesus Christ? Do you know that he came to this world? Do you know that he died for the wretched, the pitiful, the poor, the blind, and the naked? So we remember. The other thing that we do is we do what we said just a few moments ago. We repent. We walk away from the sin, and we walk towards God. And then we repeat. We do the things that we did at first when we first came to the faith. We were so in love with God. We were at the altars, weren't we? We were raising our hands, praising him. We couldn't wait to get into the word. We couldn't tell people, or wait to tell people about what God was showing us through his word. We do those things. And then we, we be persistent. We overcome and we hold on to the faith. And finally, we obey God's word. That is the word of the wonderful counselor to his churches. He spoke those words. Jesus is serious about our relationship with him. Practically, there's a couple of things that we can do. There's a killing kryptonite study that is going on on Thursdays. It's identifying those sins that are in our lives that are holding us back from fullness of relationship with God. There's what we're doing right now. We come to church. Can I encourage you? Don't you just come to church? You see some empty spots next to you, right? There's some room in this house, isn't there, for people? Let's go a step beyond and invite somebody else to come to church with us. And then, of course, there's the interaction with the body. Hey, Sundays are great, and it's a great place to get the word of God. But how about we interact a little bit more with the body in teaching, in, in things like groups, in serving, in, in volunteerism, things that allow the body to work together. That's what the book of Acts talks about with the early church, they were together constantly. They were fellowshipping. They were worshiping. They were praying together. They were serving one another. And as the community of believers was together, interacting with one another, the scriptures say that there was not one need amongst them. I believe that day and age can still be had. So what are we going to do? Are we going to fix the problem? Are we going to ignore it and hope that it goes away and find out one day that it cost us our lives? I pray that we are a church that says, God, help me fix the problem. This morning, our response, I'm inviting the worship team to the front. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We are going to take communion together as a family. Now, this is where it's going to get a little bit tricky. As I was praying this morning, and I was just praying on behalf of you and the work that the, the Word was going to do for in my life and in yours, I felt like the Holy Spirit was leading me to say, invite some people to the altar. So in just a moment, the ushers, they're going to be distributing the elements. But I believe in the house today that God is saying to somebody, some people, groupings of people, that why don't you come to the altar today and take communion at the altar? And so here's the instruction. If you would like to take communion at this altar... I'm going to ask Pastor Michael, Pastor Don, and my brother Rick, where are you? If you could come on up to the front. Thank you. 
they are going to distribute themselves across this front. And if you know that you're the per, a person that wants to come to the altar and take communion, this is a no judgment zone here, by the way. We're not saying, hey, you're, you're, this worst, you're the worst sinner out of every one of us. Look at them. They had to walk up to the altar. I'm an altar guy. When I'm at the altar praying, I, I just, I, there's just something about being on my knees there is something about being at the place where, where worship is happening, where the word is being brought out. It's almost like you're drawing a little bit closer to God. So this is a no-judgment zone. You want to take communion at this altar, come out right now. And I appreciate your boldness, brother. Way to lead by example. Now listen, for those of you that are sitting, <laughs> no judgment zone there as well. You're not a lesser Christian because you didn't come to the altar. But the focus today is this. Let's ask God to fix our problems. As the wonderful counselor to touch our lives and to once again get us heading in the right direction which we can give him the glory. The rest of the usher team, if you could, distribute the elements. In just a moment, when all have been served, we're going to partake of communion together. This isn't a, a thing that we just do for the sake of saying, hey, we knocked communion off the list for this month. Let it be the reminder today that God Almighty sent His one and only Son to be a sacrifice for you so that all of humanity could hear the message of Jesus Christ. So that all of humanity could respond to that message and be restored again in right relationship with God. Precious blood of Jesus Christ.